It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. As Russia's slow motion takeover of Ukraine advances on the icy ground, the West is punishing Vladimir Putin with economic sanctions to freeze Russia's access to the arteries of global finance. Taking aggressive punitive action against such a large economy is uncharted territory. Deterrence and coercion in this new war now have as much to do with bank transfers as with bombs. But what can sanctions actually achieve? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Vijay Vaithiswaran, The Economist's global energy and climate innovation editor. And today we're asking, can sanctions work against a military aggressor as powerful as Russia? Two days after Russia invaded Ukraine, the West responded with a big bazooka, hitting Russia with financial sanctions of a strength never before aimed at such a large economy. So powerful that they have triggered chaos in its $1.3 trillion economy and prompted President Vladimir Putin to make nuclear threats. The instant immiseration of a major economy is unprecedented and will cause shockwaves around the world. In his State of the Union address delivered last night, President Joe Biden said the free world is holding Putin accountable. Along with 27 members of the European Union, including France, Germany, Italy, as well as countries like the United Kingdom, Canada, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and many others, even Switzerland, are inflicting pain on Russia and supporting the people of Ukraine. Putin is now isolated from the world more than he has ever been. After initial reluctance in Europe, which has the strongest business ties with Russia, Western allies agreed to cut some Russian banks out of the swift global interbank payment system. This greatly hampers their ability to process international payments. The most significant of the West sanctions was the targeting of Russia's central bank, stopping it using a hefty $630 billion of reserves to undermine the impact of sanctions. The ruble and stocks went into freefall, and the Russian Central Bank more than doubled its interest rate to 20%. To assess the impact of the West sanctions on Russia's economy and the world order, here's Matthew Valencia, The Economist's senior editor, writing this week's briefing on this. Hello. Hi, Vijay. And Patrick Fowles, The Economist's business affairs editor, who's writing the leader on this topic. Welcome. Hi, Vijay. Great to join you. So... Civilian casualties are rising and the events are moving fast on the ground. But as we record this podcast, Matthew, how does the targeting of Russia's central bank work and what impact do you think it'll have domestically in Russia? Well, the aim is to have a big impact to essentially destabilize the the financial system in Russia. And it has essentially done that. 
I mean, you look at stocks, they're down heavily. The ruble has plummeted. Banks are wobbling. And that's partly also because of various restrictions that have been placed on Russian banks, including for some access to SWIFT, the the messaging system for cross-border payments. So you take those together, but the central bank move is the big one. And what that does is to prevent the central bank from, as um, the US and Europe describe it, from undermining the impact of sanctions. And one way to do that is to cut its access to rubles in foreign exchange markets to make it more difficult to buy rubles to support the currency. I mean, some of the details have been left a bit sketchy, so we don't know everything about what they're planning to do, but that's certainly part of it. And you know, one thing that's really striking about this is that it's the first central bank from a relatively large economy from the G20 to be targeted in this way. We've seen this sort of thing before with countries like Iran, Cuba, and North Korea, But for an economy the size of of Russia's and as connected as Russia's to be targeted in this way is pretty much a first. And and, uh, it's had a big effect domestically. Now, you mentioned some of the smaller economies um, we're we're familiar with. Iran may be the biggest of the prior sanction targets. In this case, Russia is a sophisticated economy, sophisticated financial management. Uh, Surely they must have seen sanctions coming. Is it possible that they can evade them? Or do you think that... um, they just had a bunker mentality and didn't think this would come? Well, I think they would have assumed that sanctions were coming. And of course, they've been subjected to sanctions before. After the uh, the annexation of Crimea in, in 2014, there were a number of Western sanctions placed on Russia. So they would have known that more was coming. But, you know, one interesting thing about this is that the central bank may not have thought that this particular measure was going to be um, imposed on Russia. And um, they may have thought that... Uh, the main focus would be on targeting commercial banks, but not the central bank itself, because that's seen as you know, a much bigger deal, a sort of crossing of the Rubicon in terms of the financial system. So we don't know exactly what they were and weren't expecting, but the signs are that they were somewhat taken aback by this. And um, we've seen, as a result of the move, some steps that look like they might be the first steps towards capital controls. We saw the central bank rushing to raise interest rates to more than double them to 20%, and then telling exporters, companies with foreign currency, to turn them into rubles. So, or to turn most of them into rubles, not the whole lot, but something like 80%. So there were moves that looked somewhat panicked in the wake of these sanctions being announced. So they are scrambling, it seems like. Let's turn to the impact this would have on the countries that trade with Russia and have other forms of economic linkages. Patrick, what what do you think will be the global impact at the national level for trade with Russia, for example? Well, Russia is a fairly big economy. It's ranked about 10th or 11th in the world in terms of GDP. But ever since the uh, annexation of Crimea in 2014, it has tried to reduce its financial linkages with the Western system. And that means that its footprint in terms of banking linkages, stock market linkages, debt market linkages are smaller than you might think. And the sanctions have yet to impose or create major disorder in Western financial markets. The exception to that is the energy impulse that Russia has through the global economy. So far, energy has largely been excluded from the sanction measures. So what we have now, I think, is a number of countries facing some minor disruption from Russia, a number of countries worrying about energy, 
and a very big group of countries, I think, worrying and thinking about the implications of this Rubicon being crossed with the West effectively freezing the reserve assets of Russia. And of course, the biggest country of all that is worried about that is China, which has over $3 trillion of reserve assets, uh, much of which are placed in accounts and securities in the West. And you can only imagine the thinking happening in Beijing as they speculate about, for example, a war in Taiwan and how the West might use this new toolkit to exert pressure on China. There's talk of turning Russia into an economic pariah. What you've stated sounds like it's it's headed in that direction. But equally, the importance of those resources you talked about, energy as well as other sorts of resources that Russia supplies to the world, does that suggest that the, it may not remain a pariah, that these goods will somehow get to market? Well, as yet, Russia's gas and oil, oil being far bigger than gas for Russia in terms of revenue, are not really subject to sanctions, although from our reporting, we understand there are a number of bottlenecks, particularly in Europe and America, opening up with people who want to transact with Russia as a result of the banking measures being taken. But I think you can imagine a situation where Russia has money still flowing in from its energy exports, but at the same time has substantial capital flight and its lack of access to those foreign exchange reserves means that either the currency will collapse further or they will be forced to tighten the capital controls that they already have in place. So I think even with the energy income continuing to flow, the overall effect of this is in effect to induce a balance of payments crisis in Russia, which is what seems to be happening on the ground. Now, at the corporate level, we've seen headlines about some Western companies being forced, in effect, to dump their Russian assets. Big American brands like Apple are pulling back from Russia. Sports leagues are banning Russian teams and so on. Patrick, can you talk about the impact on multinationals that have relationships with and investments in Russia? How's that all going to work out? Well, the reality is that very few major companies think Russia's a big market uh, outside of the energy and commodity space. So what we're seeing is a variety of measures being taken by companies all over the world, which I, I think are... Uh, meant to show solidarity with the people of Ukraine and and possibly win them brownie points for behaving virtuously, but really are not a very substantial blow to their business operations. The exception, of course, are the major energy firms, a couple of which, including BP and Shell, have said that they will withdraw from their investments in Russia. And then there are lots of commodity traders from the West who continue to deal with Russian metals, wheat exports, and so on. But I don't think Russia is really a significant contributor to Western profits or earnings. And that, again, is one reason why the effect of this isolation on the Western business world and financial markets outside of energy is, is limited. Yeah, I think Patrick's quite right. And, and you know, it'd be interesting to imagine if this was happening right now with China. I mean, I think it would be a much bigger conundrum for multinationals, given the size of that market. But um, as Patrick was saying, you know, Russia is obviously much smaller for most, most Western companies. So it's less of an issue. And I want to ask you, as a, a man who's known to rub shoulders with Russian oligarchs uh, uh, prancing around in London, their favorite playground, <laughs> can you give us a sense of how uh, the personal impact of these sanctions on oligarchs and corporate players close to Putin, how is that playing out from your analysis of the sanction scene? 
Well, Mr. Abramovich hasn't been in touch this week, but uh, clearly, you know, this is not great news for the oligarchs. We've seen sanctions against a number of them. We've also seen, of course, asset freezes against Putin himself and Sergei Lavrov, his foreign minister, although those are really just symbolic. And some of the the, the oligarch measures so far also are, are largely symbolic. But this is something which is, has come up time and again in recent years, particularly in the UK, but not a great deal was done about it, to be honest. In fact, not much at all. So there was a lot more talk than action. Uh, obviously, this has galvanised governments much more. And we've seen the United States and European countries, including the UK, pledge to set up a task force to, to go after dirty money in London and elsewhere and to cooperate more on, on doing that. So some of the oligarchs will be a little bit nervous about this. We've seen one or two of them come out and, and make statements about the war, anti-war statements or general calls for peace. But um, you can imagine the sort of conversations that are going on behind closed doors and indeed in Moscow. But I, I don't think it's time yet to call the end of London Grad. Um, at least maybe we'll have to rename it. But I think in terms of foreign money being in London and um, these uh, luxury apartments all over the city and mansions that are owned by offshore companies, I think it'll be a long time before we see um, a big reduction in that. Well, you're certainly right about that. Uh, there are plenty of tycoons from Mumbai and Dubai and elsewhere who can surely swoop up and pick up those fancy penthouses. Uh, let's let's take a step back from the, the specifics of the sanctions and, and maybe talk, Patrick, about uh, the aim of these sanctions, uh, short term and long term. Let me ask the question that's got my goat, and that is, can these sanctions really stop the war? They seem the wrong tool for that task. What What do you think? Well, I think the starting point is the other way of trying to stop a war, which is fighting back, is not on the table. So what are you left with? And I think uh, the objectives are not regime change, even though it's conceivable that could be a consequence of these sanctions. Obviously, some people might hope that these measures create a big enough shock in Russia that there's a U-turn in terms of, of the approach to Ukraine, although I think we probably all agree that's unlikely, particularly given the intensifying warfare being unleashed by Russia. So instead, I think you're you're left with several other plausible objectives. One is simply the impairment of Russia's economy and fighting capability over time should a sustained war in, in Ukraine unfold and also impair its economic development over time, which is important if you think Mr. Putin is a, an aggressor in other geographies and, and countries. And it also is there, I think, as a, a negotiating mechanism in the sense that the withdrawal of sanctions could be an inducement or the offer of withdrawal of sanctions could be an inducement or reward for uh, de-escalation by Russia. So that's really the plausible objectives in terms of, of what's happening in Ukraine. I think a broader objective now, the West has used this toolkit, really kind of crossed the Rubicon and done something that most people thought extremely unlikely to happen, is that the deterrent effect of doing this is genuinely established so that in the future, the threat of sanctions, which has not really been taken seriously at all by many countries for a long time, does become a more serious threat. And I'll leave you with this thought that had Russia known for certain that a roughly 50% drop in its national output measured in dollars would be the result of 
the invasion of Ukraine. Had that deterrent been credible, it's conceivable that it might not have made the same calculus uh, it ended up doing. And I think that longer term goal is important. I think that's absolutely right. And I think another factor here is just signalling that these things are not cost-free. And you're signalling that not just to the Kremlin, but also to your own voters, your own electorate. You know, you're going to have a lot of people, we have, of course, seen a lot of people in Western countries appalled by what they're seeing. And um, for their politicians, they, they want to be able to say, look, you know, we're not just sitting back doing nothing about this. Although I think we are unlikely to see Beijing take the same lessons, right? These sorts of sanctions will probably not be applied against China, given the vast amount of foreign investment uh, that that would be put at peril inside of China and the domestic economy. Any sanctions on China would look different. This is not a a cut and paste job for China. But BJ, the, the scenario these might be used against China is slightly different, which is that there is actually a hot war taking place over Taiwan. And in that eventuality, I think if an open war between America and its allies and, and China was taking place, I think it's now very clear that the suspension of China's reserves would be a very plausible part of that war fighting approach by the West and would be capable of imposing serious stress on China's economy. Now, obviously, the reality is China's ability to retaliate economically is significantly higher than Russia's. But I still think in economic terms, the balance of advantage would be with the West. And it is that calculus, I think, that Beijing will be thinking about quite seriously now. Well, let's hope we don't have to make a future Money Talks episode on that topic. In a moment, we'll look back at how well sanctions have worked in the past and to the future to how these current sanctions against Russia can be unwound. But first, you can read our unparalleled analysis of events in Ukraine as they unfold, including reports by Matthew, Patrick, and me on sanctions, energy, and the global impact of these events. You can subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The use of sanctions as a weapon has become familiar territory. It's risen sharply over the last couple of decades. The total number of companies and individuals on the American sanctions list has risen tenfold since 2000. So, Matthew, tell me how effective these sanctions have been in the past. It's quite hard to measure. It's difficult to disentangle the effects of of sanctions from other economic forces. So it isn't easy to give a sort of percentage success and failure. But there have been a few studies, and one by the Government Accountability Office in the United States reached a a fairly pessimistic conclusion, which was that something like two-thirds of sanctions imposed up to that point, which was just a few years ago, had essentially failed to meet their objectives. I'd say there have been a few out-and-out successes in the past 
One actually was was an early one, or relatively early one, um, Suez 1956, when the United States um, threatened to withdraw Britain's uh, drawing rights at the IMF. And, you know, within a day or two, Britain and France had um, pulled away from Egypt. Another one is Libya in the late 90s and early 2000s, when uh, Muammar Gaddafi was uh, persuaded by Western sanctions and other measures to pull back from sponsoring terrorism. So there have been one or two clear successes, but there have also been quite a few failures as well. One was Iran. That's been subject to what's been called maximum pressure sanctions under President Trump and is still subject to American and, and Western sanctions. Venezuela, Cuba as well. So it's been a mixed bag, but um, probably more failures than successes. I spoke to Juan Zarate, author of Treasury's War, a former advisor to George W. Bush, and a former deputy national security advisor in the United States who helped design America's financial counterterrorism program. And I asked him how effective sanctions have been in the past. You have to go back to 9-11 to understand what happened over the last 20 years and where we are with the sanctions playbook. The international community made a decision that we were going to do everything possible to isolate terrorist groups and to use the attack on terrorist financing as a way of preventing further terrorist acts, as well as to prevent terrorist groups from having the means uh, to achieve even more destructive aims. And what we, in essence, did, Matthew, was to begin to establish a strategy that made it harder, costlier, and riskier for terrorist groups and then other rogue actors over time uh, to raise and move money around the world, to access the financial system, and find ways to isolate them more aggressively over time to, to make it harder for them to operate, to make their choices more difficult, hopefully to change their behavior. And ultimately, if you could deter them, uh, that was a goal. And we applied it against Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups to the best of our ability. And then that strategy began to inform how we thought about dealing with nation states like Iran and North Korea. And we do know that you know, sanctions, when combined with other tools, can change behavior. I think you, you've had examples uh, in the South African context. You've had examples in, in some of the early days of Burma that, you know, uh, Burma and Myanmar has gone through various fluctuations. And certainly with Iran, you know, the sanctions brought Iran to the nuclear negotiating table in 2015. Whether or not one likes the results of that negotiation in some ways, it doesn't matter. The reality was the Iranians had to come to the table because their economy was under such stress. So sanctions are, are impactful. Uh, they have effect. Whether or not they achieve the strategic goals of those implementing them uh, is often a different question and a question of what those sanctions are intended to achieve. It's an imperfect science and art. And when you have a desire to use sanctions in maximalist form, to isolate an economy or a regime, uh, you are going to have people, innocent people, who are affected economically. We're seeing that with Russia now. And clearly, there, you know, there is an attempt to isolate, explicitly um, talked about by, by Western leaders, to isolate the Russian economy. I guess one difference today from um, some of the cases you worked on is the size of the economies, right? Russia, China, of course, being a huge economy. To what extent does that require new thinking when it comes to sanctions? You're absolutely right. I think that the bigger the target, the larger the economy, the more entangled uh, that economy with the West, uh, the more complicated the application of sanctions. And so that has required 
quite a bit of innovation, which, you know, we saw back in 2014 with Russia, given the invasion of Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And so what you've had since 2014 has been adaptations of sanctions in in a couple of different ways. One, the use of sectoral sanctions, that is to say, picking sectors of the Russian economy that are potentially subject to to sanction, not all of the economy, but but particular sectors that could be targeted, and then entities within those, financial institutions, defense contractors, etc. So that's one innovation. Another is the need to consider what the targets are willing to do in response. Because it's very hard for, I think, the Iranians or the North Koreans or a terrorist group or drug cartel to kind of bite back with economic measures. It's another thing for the Russian regime, Putin, to take steps to hurt Western interests. You know, Putin has the ability to bite back, whether it's in in restricting oil and gas exports or in expropriating property. There has been thinking about what does that look like? How do you calibrate that? How do you then think about the application of tools when the target can, can respond? Vijay, historically, sanctions have been designed not to touch oil and gas, as this would be an own goal given how much Western countries consume. But we've seen Shell saying that it's going to exit its joint ventures with Gazprom, a big energy company in Russia, and a BP has pulled out of Russia's state-controlled oil producer, Rosneft. And the French energy giant Total is discussing its presence in Russia Obviously, other energy companies are thinking very hard about what they're going to do as well and are feeling the pressure. Isn't this just another form of sanction? Well, we could add Exxon, the biggest of the Western oil majors, trying to leave the country to your list, Matthew. Though Russia says it won't let them. On your question of whether this is a form of sanction that's going to punish Russia or keep down its energy sector, I would argue no, actually. Who's being punished by those are the companies you mentioned, the Western companies. Really, the thing I think is essential to understand is uh, oil, particularly, uh, and gas to a lesser degree, is a fungible global commodity, right? And it's one that the world economy runs on. And so that oil that uh, was produced by Rosneft, let's say, in collaboration with BP, just because BP was forced to dump its assets at a great loss, doesn't mean that oil is not going to get to market. If anything, uh, these sorts of forced exits by Western companies in oil and related energies are a bit of a gift to the domestic economy, to Gazprom, let's say, uh, and Rosneft. In the short term, they get these assets for free or on the cheap, as well as seeing higher prices on global markets because of the crisis that Russia itself created. And so in the short term, unfortunately, I would argue, uh, these are actually going to benefit the Russian oil and gas producers as long as those molecules are allowed to be exported to the world. So Vijay, uh, oil prices have been going up. They're they're around $100 a barrel. Gas prices are going up. And that means bills in Europe and America are going up. And this is happening just as some key elections are unfolding. The midterms in the US not far away and more immediately the French elections. Uh, So how is this going to play out with voters and how does that affect the calculus for Western leaders? This is a real problem for politicians, both in Europe and in the US. If you take America first, President Biden's popularity is already in trouble. 
And one of the hot button issues in America is always the price of gasoline. It's a barometer by which presidents rise and fall. We even saw President Biden use the strategic petroleum reserves a few months ago at a time when there was no war. There was no real global crisis. He released oil from the strategic reserves to lower the prices, basically to win himself a bit more popularity. It didn't work. And so now we may very well have an actual crisis caused by the, the Ukrainian conflict. There may be some disruptions to come. We don't know. And in, in which case, uh, he may have to rely on this again. Those higher prices are something he desperately wants to avoid in what is an election year in the U.S. In European capitals, we see similar sensitivity, especially because his, this is coming on the back of six months of a, a European winter shock on prices related to gas prices and power prices. And so we've already seen governments in trouble in Europe. And that's one of the reasons why both national capitals as well as the European Commission are considering how to buffer the poorest. Among the considerations are a windfall profit tax, for example, on energy producers, where those monies could be redirected to reduce or um, cap energy bills. So this is a serious political problem for the West as it deals with what is basically Russia's advantage being a massive oil and gas producer. And what about the nightmare scenario for the West, which is that Russia does significantly lower or even uh, cut off completely its export of gas to Europe. Could Europe hold out? Um, how bad would things get? This is the nightmare scenario. It seemed almost impossible. Even during the height of the Cold War, the Soviets didn't cut off the gas to Germany, their best customer. They found other means of, of dealing with this. But we see from Vladimir Putin's if not irrational, certainly aggressive actions that he might very well consider using the energy weapon. The good news in the short term is that Europe will survive the winter. Granny is not going to freeze if all the Russian gas drops off tomorrow. The main reason is that winter is almost over, right? We've already made it to March in effect, and, and there's a big drop in gas consumption in Europe uh, once we get towards uh, springtime. And so that makes it much easier to use alternative sources like liquefied natural gas imports or a little bit of increase in coal to get over into the, the warmer weather. Longer term, though, this is a real problem. If this were to continue, if Russia were to keep that gas off the market longer term, refilling gas storage for next winter becomes very difficult, for example. The markets become much tighter, uh, and the problem of Russian gas addiction is going to be one that's very hard for Europe to kick. Patrick, I would draw a contrast between oil and gas, because um, I think if oil were to be cut off from Russia for even any short period of time, that would have quite a dramatic consequence, not just for Europe, but for global oil markets. Unlike piped gas from Russia, which can only go to Europe, the oil flows onto a fungible global market and every barrel is basically connected to every other barrel. And the world is at the moment in a very tight place when it comes to spare capacity. And Russia being the second biggest oil exporter, its exports cannot possibly be made up for by spare capacity in Saudi Arabia or American shale or strategic reserves for any period of time. So that is actually a more potent weapon if Russia wanted to punish itself by denying itself those oil revenues, it would actually inflict great harm to the world economy. So one question I do have for my gurus on our Money Talks today, if I were Russia and I was going to be cut off from the SWIFT system or the use of the dollar, wouldn't I be heavily exploring cryptocurrencies or e-yuan options with the Chinese or some sort of barter trade? We've seen countries like Iran, which have been under sanctions, still manage to get a lot of their oil out through this sort of illicit and barter and furtive trade. Matthew, what, what do you think? Uh, don't the Russians have a plan in place to use crypto? 
In terms of cryptocurrencies, that's a big unknown. I mean, I think the policing of crypto has obviously tightened up quite a lot over recent years, but there are going to be gaps and it's not always as fully anonymous as we like to think. So I think that's going to be a very interesting area to watch. Just in terms of the the non-dollar currencies, Russia has for years been trying to switch to non-dollar contracts for its oil uh, and, and, and gas. And um, they've managed to sign quite a lot of contracts with customers in euros, but they're still, uh, as I understand it, largely reliant on, on dollar trade. So while they've made some headway there, you know, they haven't been able to fully or largely switch to other currencies. Now, other countries are watching all of this to learn how to insulate their financial systems, maybe moving away from dollar reserves or other ways of getting around the SWIFT problem. Now, this poses a dilemma for America, it seems, Patrick. You wrote a very prescient cover story a couple of years ago on the weapons of mass disruption, as you call them, America's many tools that it has for imposing its will, basically, through the its control of the global financial architecture. Could this... Russia crisis proved the final blow to America's domination of the global financial sector as alternatives arise? Well, I think it does accelerate uh, the process. So, you know, America is overwhelmingly uh, preeminent at the moment on almost every measure. And yet it's always been clear on paper what would be needed to escape the American system. And that is uh, a payment system that doesn't rely ultimately on clearing dollars through New York and at the same time, an asset market where you can store wealth abroad that doesn't rely on buying securities uh, in Western markets. And if you look today, that preeminence of the West suggests that most countries are a million miles away from uh, being able to set up a parallel system. So, you know, the the RMB, the yuan, uh, accounts for roughly 3% of global payments, a minuscule share after a decade or more of China trying to build up its presence. But I think that understates what's happening. And for example, uh, on certain corridors, including the trade between Russia and China, the use of the dollar has dramatically declined and the use of the RMB and rubles and so on have become more important And secondly, the technological changes that are happening uh, open up all sorts of new possibilities. China's e-yuan, although nascent and flawed, now has over 200 million users within China. And I think over time, on a a five to 10 year horizon, I would guess that you will see a significant shift of activity away from the American-centric financial system among autocratic countries that seek to protect themselves from this kind of economic weapon. Looking to the future, what happens when the sanctions are taken away? Can the sticks really become carrots? How do you unwind the sanctions when the aggressions that caused them cannot be easily reversed? Well, I think one of the things historically about the use of sanctions, particularly the big acceleration in the use of sanctions over the last 20 years, is that uh, they just seem to sort of last forever. And there isn't really a kind of clear timetable for their expiry or clear triggers for what might lead them to be retracted. And I think that that difficulty applies here. I mean, probably what might happen is if the violence in Ukraine is dialed down, 
that the economic sanctions could at least on paper be gradually dialed down to. But I think it's obvious that at least on the present trajectory, Russia is not about to withdraw from Ukraine and it therefore follows that the sanctions that are in place uh, are very unlikely to be withdrawn either. And you have then a kind of scenario in which there's a long-standing set of restrictions on Russia, which it, it will try and learn to live with, but which will certainly impair its economy in the long run and its productive capability. Just to reinforce what Patrick was saying, I think these days, more often than not, sanctions are you know, like the uh, proverbial roach motel or maybe uh, roach prison would be uh, a better analogy. You, know, you can check in, but you can't check out. And um, you know, one of the reasons for that, if you look at Iran, for example, was there were a host of behaviours that were were sort of listed as being reasons to sanction that country. Uh, you know, it's nuclear ambitions, aiding terrorism, and a number of other things. And you're then in a position where to take those sanctions away, you know, you have to kind of tick all of those things and say, yes, you've you've done all of them. And uh, the more there are, the harder it is to get off that off ramp. Sanctions can clearly be powerful weapons, but also highly uh, flawed. Does the world need a new doctrine? Well, I think what we'll now face, even when the crisis in Ukraine passes, is is a, a desperate need for that. You have most countries in the world relying on the Western financial system. You have a large number of countries who don't regard themselves as kind of full American allies and a significant number who have already been subject to the proliferation of sanctions. And now that it's clear that uh, the West can impose really quite serious economic costs overnight and is prepared to do so, I think you'll have a large number of countries, including places even like India, worrying that they have, you know, face a, a sort of loss of strategic autonomy as a result of this. And I think unless a message is sent out by the West that that this sort of thing is only going to be used in the most extreme circumstances, i.e. in effect, war. I think you will see that process of of both countries looking for alternative systems as backups and also more broadly a trend towards sort of economic autarky. And it's interesting that in the 1920s, when uh, sanctions were last used so actively, they are, I think, historians judge uh, a factor behind the the sort of descent into protectionism and, and worse things in the 1930s. Well, Patrick, you, you put your finger on, uh, I think, uh, the point that I want to, to close on, and that is they're not only a double-edged sword, you know, we clearly see the argument made for how they're getting more innovative and creative in, in, in their application, but we do see a potential darker side that, indeed, we may very well see the autarkic nations of the world head in a different direction, try to make themselves immune, and we, that could lead to the balkanization of the global economy, which was already in progress, and that would lead to a much grimmer and poorer future for everyone. So we here at The Economist will certainly be watching this very closely. I want to thank you both very much, Patrick and Matthew. Thanks, VJ. Great being with you. Thanks for having me, VJ. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or write to us at podcasts at economist.com. The producers are Sandra Shmueli, Amika Shortino-Nolan, and Nicola Rofast. I'm Vijay Vaitiswaran in New York. This is The Economist.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 